So open up your Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. In Ephesians 6, the tenth verse, he starts uh, finalizing the whole book, you know, what he's been talking about. And then he addresses the brethren. So this is written to Christians, people who already have received Christ. Because some of the things that are written in the Bible will not matter, nor will they make sense to people who don't know the Lord. They won't. It'd be like going to a classroom, you know, and in kindergarten and teaching like biology or trigonometry. It just, it's like, what? Huh? Jesus said it this way one time. A, a, a religious person came to him at night. He had studied the scriptures. He, he could quote stuff, you know, in the scriptures. His name was Nicodemus. And uh, he came to Jesus, and he, and he came to him, and he said, We know you're a teacher sent from God. He said, Because nobody can do the stuff you do unless God's with him. And then Jesus made this statement to him, and it seems like it's just in the blue, out of the blue, random statement, but it's really not. He said, Nicodemus, he said, Except for one be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus said, well, how can you be born again? Do you, and he said this because he didn't know. Now think about it. He's a religious person that really didn't even have the answers. Jesus was talking to him and he said, how can you be born again? Can you enter into your mother's womb the second time and be born again? You think about it. He's totally thinking natural he doesn't understand God. He doesn't understand what God does. He doesn't understand how God works. And he's a religious person. And he said, can you enter in a second time? And Jesus said, no. He said, that which he talked about being born of the flesh is one thing, and being born of the Spirit is another thing. And then he said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So then he changed his words a little bit. And so now he's saying you've got to be born, and he talked about a natural birth and a spiritual birth. Because some people don't realize there is a difference between the two. And they think, well, if I'm naturally born, then I'm okay with God. Jesus said, no, you have to be born again. You have to be born spiritually. And he explained how to do it. But the interesting thing there was, was this. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word there, see, isn't like a word we talk about, like we say, oh, did you see the cars in the parking lot this morning? Or you, you know, uh, came driving here and you run into somebody and you know they came the same way and they say, hey, did you notice they're building a new store? And they say, yeah, I drove past too and I saw it. I'd never seen it before, but I do. That is not what Jesus was saying when he said, except you be born again, you cannot see. It literally in the Greek means to perceive and grasp the things of the kingdom. So he said, unless somebody's born again, they won't even grasp things of the kingdom. That's why after people give their life to the Lord, the Bible becomes a totally different book. There's a reality to it. Because now they can see and perceive. And so I tell people it's good to win people to the Lord, not try to teach them a bunch of stuff who are lost. Because Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and teach, to teach people. Just teach them all these wonderful principles. No, he said, go and reach them. Then once they're reached, you teach them because now they have the capacity to grow. And so that's why I said, some of the things of God just don't even make sense to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't know the Word. You mean you prayed for somebody and you laid hands on somebody? Why did you do that? Well, it's all through the Bible, and it's a way to transfer God's power. You know, when you praise God and we sing, you can start sensing God. But there's other ways to transfer God's power. The Bible tells us that. So it's not strange from a Bible standpoint, but the Bible said that the carnal or natural man thinks spiritual things are foolish. That's why 
people need to be saved. They need to give their life to the Lord. And so when he's writing this, he said, Brethren, be strong in the Lord. And so he's writing here to brethren or to people who have already committed their life to Jesus. <clears throat> In other words, they knew he died. They know he rose again. They knew he was a substitute, and they accepted that gift. And then it goes on to say, as he's writing, he said, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or stand against the wiles or the tricks of the devil. Here's the interesting thing. A person in the world doesn't stand against the wiles of the enemy. Many times they just follow him. That's why you see the world going darker and darker and darker. One verse said that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. There's people who want to be free, but they don't know how. They don't know that the real answer is Jesus only. And so they struggle along when there was really help there for them. And so as he's writing, he said, put on the whole armor of God. Now, does that mean that you go to a clothing store and buy this armor? You know, show up at Red Robin or In-N-Out or wherever after church one Sunday morning, and all of a sudden you see some guy with a metal helmet and metal breastplate on and, you know, these Roman-looking soldier sandals on said, obviously, you're acting on the Word. No. What it was, was Paul has spent more than one time in prison sleeping by a Roman soldier. And he knew these armor pieces, and he uses them to explain spiritual attitudes that every Christian should have if they want to be successful in this life. So when he said, put on the whole armor of God, we talked about that. The Christian has to put this on. It doesn't automatically come on you. And the way you're going to put it on is through understanding and believing. And so as it goes on, he said, put on the full armor of God so that you'd be able to stand against the wiles or the tricks of the devil. Anybody ever thought, he's pretty tricky? He does. He's, he I mean, he just talks this way and that way, and he just tries to twist things. But it goes on to say, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness uh, in the heavenly places. Now, he's not talking about here these devils up in the sky somewhere, and we get and fight and stuff. No, he's talking about in your general life, there are going to be things that are going to come against you to try to pull you, to make you want to go a different way and not really go with it with God. And if you read on, it says, um, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Have you ever had an evil day? You thought, what, what, what's going on? I'm doing everything you told me, Lord. Why? Because there are days that just seem like stuff comes to the believer. But he goes on, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand. Stand, therefore, and then he's going to explain these things. So basically, we are reading verses here that are telling the Christian you can actually overcome. You can actually win out in things that maybe you thought you couldn't. And he's trying to explain. And then he's going to tell you these are important things that you need to know if you're going to overcome. And so the very first thing he said was, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. Verse 14, stand therefore having. In other words, this is when you're ready to stand. And we've already talked about this, having gird your loins with truth. And then it goes on to say, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet or strapping on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith. And it goes on to list some things. But I want to stop right there and look at this one area this morning, taking up or putting on the breastplate plate of righteousness. The breastplate 
is, you know, when you look at a soldier, you know, the Roman soldiers, they, that, that piece that covered them through the, you know, their shoulders down to the midsection, you know, covered the front and the back. If they got an arrow shot at them or a knife thrown at them, they had something to protect their lungs, their heart, their vital organs. And so he said, you have to take this up. And it's interesting, he calls it the breastplate of righteousness. And so what is this breastplate? Why do police have body armor? Protect them. You know, when I grew up, you know, I grew up in Southern California, and before I moved here, they had that big bank robbery there with, with those guys that had the full automatic weapons. They just marched down the street, and they were getting shot at, and they were just going. Well, they had not just only a breastplate. They had full body armor, and they were deflecting all kinds of things. When you can't have, you know, your arms covered and everything, the main part is where do they give body armor? for this midsection because you can get hit in the arm and you're going to, you could make it, get hit in the leg, but you get hit right in here with the organs and it is going to really make your day not good. And so he said to be able to uh, stand against the attacks of the enemy, so there are attacks. He said, you're going to need to have this breastplate of righteousness on. And here is what the breastplate is not. And here is something that people need to know as a Christian. So many Christians will say things like, you know, and they'll pray. Lord, you know I've been doing really good. You've got to answer this prayer. You know I'm the nicest person in the church. You know I'm the second nicest person. Okay, forgive me. I'm not the nicest person. I'm... Third, maybe, but I'm still nice. I'm better than everybody outside the church. You know, and they start doing that. And what they don't realize is that gives them no strength or value before God. Remember Jesus when he met the religious people of his time? He said that they said, you know, they would talk to the Lord and pray and they'd say, at least we're not like them. In other words, they were trying to say, hey, I'm good, I'm better, I'm not like them, they're bad. That doesn't work with God. It doesn't. And uh, so turn to Romans 4 and let's get going in this. Romans 4. This will help you because this is a teaching that is definitely lacking in the church world. This paralyzes people. Many Christians have fallen by the wayside by not having this on, have lived a life where they went forward with God, but totally ineffective. Because they've said this, well, I'll serve you, Lord. They, they're kind of like the prodigal child. I sold everything, you know, and wasted everything and wrong living. I'm going to go back and say, God, you know, or Father... I'll work for you. I'll, you know, I'll eat the crumbs. I'll eat the junk. I, I can be like a servant. And the father said, no, you get full standing back with me. But so many Christians act like the prodigal and say, well, I've done so much wrong. Uh, if I do good enough for a while, then I'm ready to get back up and go. That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. You could say it this, word, this way, that person is not dressed properly. To think like that and to speak like that is to basically heap condemnation on yourself as a believer to say, if I work enough, I'll be back in a place where God will accept me. In other words, you are the one who makes yourself good enough for God to accept you and good enough for you to get your prayers answered, and good enough to be accepted. People think like that all the time. And uh, it may not be right. I'm talking for believers. And that kind of thinking is in the world, too. People say, well, you know, I've been good enough, and so God's going to have to let me in. 
Nobody can be that good. Nobody can. Notice this in Romans, the fourth chapter and the 25th verse. And so here it is. We're going to start giving you stuff. I'm going to stretch out a sleeve so you're whole, so you can put your arm through. Start putting this breastplate on. He said, verse 25 of the fourth chapter, who was delivered up because of our offenses? Why did Jesus, we're celebrating Easter or the resurrection of the Lord, this, this period of time where Christ died you know, a few days ago and rose again from the dead. And, and we're celebrating His death and resurrection. But here it says, the reason why, you could say it like this, who was delivered, or the reason He was delivered up was because of our offenses. He did not die for himself. He was delivered up. The reason he was able to die was not for himself. He wouldn't have died if, they didn't, if he didn't have sin on him. Because he had life only. But he bore our sins, so he was delivered up because of our offenses or our wrongdoing. And he was raised... Those days later, you could say, because of our justification. Why did Jesus rise again from the dead? That is a good question. If he died for your sins, why did he rise? He had an appointment. Only got three days, and then after that, I got some other stuff to do. No. He died for you, he was buried for you, he was raised for you, not for himself. Why was he raised? It said, for our justification. The word justify means to be just like you never sinned. It's the same word that means righteous. So he was delivered up on account of all your wrongs and wrongdoing and all the sin that you would ever commit, past, present, and future. God does not panic if you sin tomorrow. Oh no. What have they done? I only paid for up till March 17th. But people think like that. Oh, God, you know, forgive me. I'll never do this again. Just, you know. If you can just forgive me one more time, I don't want to strain the bank account of heaven, you know, like a gumball machine that's got like one gumball left and you're shaking it, trying to get that thing into position to make it come out because he may not have enough. No, he abounded, paid for it all. People don't like that because I think they like to use guilt to drive themselves. But the fact of the matter is he was delivered up for all of humanity's wrongdoing. The reason he was raised up was the payment for all the wrong had been accomplished and therefore he could declare a person totally like they had never sinned because he paid for all their sins. That's a fact. That is a fact. I mean, he did. How many of you are familiar with, like, the Jews, you know, and how they, you know, do sacrifices? And there's just, you know, the Passover meal. And, you know, they were to be reminded to offer up a lamb. And then every year and regularly, they had priests all the time that were just offering up animal sacrifices. Why did they offer up all those sacrifices? to deal with sin in people's lives. And so when Jesus was raised, he died once and he rose once. That was it. But back then they kept doing this again and again. Turn to Hebrews. Because we want to see what it is to have on this breastplate of righteousness. Or you could say it like this, this sense like I've never sinned. Having a sense as a believer, like you never sinned. But you have sinned. Exactly. But the only reason you can have a sense like you never sinned is if somebody canceled the debt and then gave you good standing 
In other words, they substituted and they took the penalty for your wrongs in order so that you could experience how right they are. In other words, Jesus was so right, he became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, so that you might become right with the rightness of God. People need to know that. I'm right with God because of Jesus, totally clean in God's sight. What would it be like if you really were clean in God's sight and there was no guilt before you? You would never go before him like a coward. You would never have a sense of condemnation. You'd never have a sense of guilt because you'd be like, I'm clean. I'm right. I'm washed. There's nothing between me and God, but you can't get that yourself. No matter how perfect you are, you can't. So that's why you have a Savior. Or you could say it this way. He is the ultimate substitute. And so here in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, we're going to read a, a few verses here. But this breastplate of righteousness, or you could just say this sense of righteousness that really protects our spiritual heart. And protects our heart before God is not by ourselves, it's not by our own might, it's not by our own doing. God sets you right in such a way that you, before Him, look totally innocent. I know that sometimes for people when they hear this, it's just hard to grasp. But really, you're taking a substitute. And that substitute is the one who bought, who paid for, got your innocence and your cleansing, period. That's why you need to look at Jesus. See, if you look at yourself, you're going to think of all the dumb stuff you did even this morning. But when you accept Jesus, you realize He cleans you in such a way that He removes any sense of guilt and shame. But you need faith in His work. That's why you need this breastplate, because I promise you this, you go to make a stand and resist the enemy and want prayers answered, and you say, okay, God, I want this, or you speak to a mountain, and you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on, the enemy is going to come to you, and he's going to throw a fiery dart, like the Bible said, and just chuck it right at you and say, you're not good enough to get this, you're not strong enough, you're not wise enough. Why would God ever do this for you? You know, remember all those things you did yesterday? And then He'll get you thinking about everything you did in the past and how unworthy you are. Really, all He's doing is, people don't know it, He's throwing fiery darts and you're running around like you're on fire instead of putting out the fire and resisting the enemy and realizing God is the one who did this. God's the one who said this about me, not me. I didn't make this up. I didn't come up with this plan. God did. And so here in Hebrews 10, we're going to read a few verses. Verse 1 says this. And we'll read through verse 4, then we'll skip down a couple of verses. It says, for the law. Now this is the Old Testament having a shadow of good things to come. You know what a shadow is? It's not the image. You know, like a shadow of a tree, if you just look at the shadow, it doesn't tell you the real thing, but it gives you kind of an outline. It doesn't tell you whether it's a pine tree. doesn't tell you if it's, you know, you might see round things. So those could be pine cones. They could be pears. They could be apples. They could be whatever kind of fruit. So it's just a shadow. And so he said here, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image. In other words, you can't find the very image in the shadow, but you can get an idea. It says, Can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year. So he's talking about the law and how priests every year would offer up sacrifices to cover man's sin. And they would do it year after year after year. And what he's saying is that was a shadow. It wasn't really the image, but it was trying to show us something, but it was really not giving us the good, right image. But it was telling us that 
sin could be in some sense affected. But it just wasn't buying it. Notice this. It can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. In other words, people year after year just kept going and getting stuff, you know. How many people still try to do that? Lord, I'll pray more, I'll give more, I'll do more for you and think it'll make me better. And just like this, year after year, it doesn't do it. And they were still in God's plan. It would cover them temporarily, but it could never deal with them inside and change them. He said, for then, he said, it, notice this, it could never make those who approach perfect, for then would they not have ceased to off, be offered. In other words, if this sacrifice testament really worked to remove sin from the heart and the sense of guilt and condemnation from the heart of man instead of just covering it over year to year he said then they could have stopped doing it it worked it worked i mean think about this what if this year you have a house payment month after month after month and next year you have a house payment month after month after month after month and you keep doing this year after year the reason why you do it is because you are still in debt. The reason you stop paying is it's paid for. What if you then after tried to do something to pay? The bankers would be like, you know, by law in our country, they'd have to send it back to you. But some people in ignorance would go, I've been doing this so long, I need to send it back to them. And the banker knows because they got the book, but I got to send it back to them. I got to pay for this, but it's already paid for. How many times have people made promises because they felt like they had to repay God? And this is saying, listen, these guys, if this would have worked... It, it would have paid off the debt, and then there would be no more sacrifices. There'd be no more lambs dying. There would be no more doves being sacrificed. Why? Because notice it says, For then would they, verse 2, have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Notice those two big words, purified consciousness. They would have recognized that sin was so removed, they have good standing with God. But he said this couldn't happen with those sacrifices, so they just kept on keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. They couldn't be purified. They couldn't stand good before God. Verse 3 says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Let me ask you this. If you are reminded of sin every week or every day, what will that do for you? Uh, you're wrong. You're bad. You never measure up. You're a loser. Oh, you're just going to be so excited to face the day. No, you're going to start having this inferiority complex about yourself. And so what he did was said that these couldn't get rid of it, and so just by virtue of continually sacrificing year after year, it was a reminder, you're not fixed. You are still guilty in the sight of God, but we can keep covering this. But really, the debt, has not been removed. And so it says that they did this year after year, and all it did was remind them that their problem was not solved. They were conscious of sin, and they were not purified. Notice verse 4. For it is not even possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. If sin was removed, you'd be clean. You'd be purified. You wouldn't be conscious of, I'm bad. You'd be conscious of, he made me right. Notice verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. 
which is in the context saying that then, therefore, you're just reminded that you are not good enough before God because your sin problem is still there. Notice he said, if it had worked, it would have stopped needing to be done. But it didn't ever work. And you know what's so wild? We know before the Lord comes back, and we're so getting closer to his return, that the Antichrist will come. He'll sit in the temple in, in Israel and in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and they will start offering sacrifices again. It's interesting, they'll start. As a matter of fact, I know that they did sacrifice this year right next to the Temple Mount. Last year they tried and got in trouble. They did it this year, and they didn't get in trouble. What are they saying? We've got a problem that still isn't fixed. We've got a problem that is still not fixed, so they're going to look for somebody to fix it who we know is the Antichrist. But notice this in verse 12. But this, I'm sorry, we'll go back to 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Notice verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, one for many, forever sat down at the right hand of God. Notice how it says, one, forever. Notice down in verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected, we could say it this way, purified, because that was one of the words, cleansed the conscience, forever those who are being sanctified or set apart by him. Verse 17. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission, or literally means removal of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Why is it that we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore? Because His worked to remove guilt from the believer. To give the believer the sense that I'm innocent in the sight of God. That I have right standing in the sight of God. This is super important when you live in a world that says, do you measure up? Do you have the right job? Do you have the right car? Do you live in the right neighborhood? And everything they do is they put people in categories and say, where are you here? But God is not like that. He doesn't put you in categories like that when it comes to salvation. Maybe for service, there are different people in places. But when it comes to salvation, everybody has good standing. Everybody that receives Jesus is like they've never sinned. Everyone is declared innocent, not based on their own performance, but on the basis of what Jesus did. It seems so odd because in our society, you work, 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 and the more you work, the better you are, the further ahead you get. Then we go to God and go, I'll work, 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 and I'll get further ahead with you and be better. And he said, listen, the only way you can be good with me and be right like you never sinned is to accept and trust in Jesus. Paul, who was super religious, he said, all my religious knowledge and all that, he said, I, I throw it aside that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and not have my own right standing with God, which is by works. And so this breastplate of righteousness is so interesting because really kind of flies in the face of how people think in our society. Here you just trust him and believe what he said, in society, you've got to work, work, work. And he said, I did the work, 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 uh, and I rose from the dead. Now notice this in Romans, the third chapter, because we're just going to read a couple more verses and we're going to close. But this breastplate of righteousness, when in place, will help you to repel all condemnation and not have a sense of guilt. Have not, not have a sense of inferiority before God. I didn't know what it was when I got saved and gave my life to the Lord, but there was a sense 
that I was not inferior anymore before the Lord. And it wasn't because I was living perfect or just exactly everything, but I just knew Jesus was the man. And I had a sense that whatever he did and whatever I got in him, I'm not guilty anymore. And it made me want to go talk to God. It didn't make me go, oh, great. You know, you ever remember those days? Maybe you are remembering them right now where you weren't doing exactly what your parents said, so you didn't want to go talk to them. And you went, oh, man, I feel a little guilty here. And they're like, hey, coming in to eat. And then you don't go in 20 minutes early to sit down because you could engage in conversation. We don't want that right now. (laughs) You ever been there? And so then you eat, and then then you get busy. I got to go. I got to leave. Because you don't want to face the questions that may come. And when people have a sense of inferiority and guilt before God, they're that way. You know, I'll pray, oh, Lord, help me. Okay, I got to go. And, you know, they don't want to wait before the Lord because he might start talking to them. And I don't want to know what he's got to say because, you know, I did three things the other day. They don't understand this breastplate. They don't understand what Jesus did. And what happens is when there's guilt and condemnation, we may buy a religious deed because we know we got to do it because, man, we're His, and we know we got to pray. But, man, oh my, I really got to be careful how I do this because He just may start dealing with me and talking to me, and I don't... I'm just concerned after all the things I've done. They have a sense of inferiority. They have a sense of guilt. They don't have a sense of right standing. This is what this breastplate does, is it makes my heart genuine and protected before Him. And so, here in Romans, the third chapter, let's read just a couple of verses, go through these quick before we go. Because it's important to have this on. You know, I've had people just talk to me and they they feel guilty talking to me. They find out I'm a pastor. Oh. Then they talk religious, you know, and all of a sudden they're like some kind of theologian, you know, and you think you just need to stop talking. And, um, you know, they're trying to, you know. People did that. That woman that was in adultery, you know, had had five husbands. You know, Jesus starts telling her stuff about her life that nobody knew. And she starts saying religious stuff. Well, you know, our fathers, your fathers worship here. We worship this way. Which one's right? And she was probably hitting on him or wanting to. You think I'm joking? She had been with five men. It is known that those people, Jews and Samaritans, are not to have interaction, and a woman was not to approach a man like that. Here she's been with five men. She's now with another man. He's not there. She, you know, shows up, and he said, hey, can I get some water? And he said, who are you, a Jew speaking to me, a Samaritan? But they're right there engaging in conversation. There could have been, the Bible said he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Where did, that come, where did those temptations come? And you've got this woman who's this way, and so he has a word of knowledge from God and starts speaking to her, telling her the secrets of her life, and then she becomes religious. And how many people do that? And it can be a protective thing. But the fact of the matter is, is people do that, I think, sometimes to think, well, I'm good with God, I'm not good with God, and want to project a certain thing. That doesn't solve the heart issue. It just makes you project to somebody you're a certain way. Notice this, and these verses to me are amazing. There are bunches of them like this in the Bible. Romans 3.24, it says, And being justified, which means just like you never sinned. It's the same wording. If you look up the definition, it means righteous. So you could say it this way. Being just like you never sinned, or being declared righteous, freely by His grace or by His gift, through the redemption or the payment that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God sent forth or set forth as a propitiation. What's that mean? A payment. A mercy seat, a payment by his blood. Remember, he was delivered up for your offenses, but he was raised to declare you righteous. And it says here, by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. God wants his, demonst- his righteousness demonstrated in your life. You know, have you ever gone to a, like Costco and they got the blender guy? He's got the little microphone like this, and it sounds like he's talking like this. Hey, you over there, if you want to try some of these strawberries, they're really good, and we can do it. Come on over. And you're like, nah. And, but they're talking. They're getting the people around. What are they doing? They're demonstrating at the present time that blender. So God is basically saying, listen, I have righteousness It's not just a token thing. It's actually something that's supposed to be experienced. There are results for doing it. If you use a blender, you can make out of peanuts, peanut butter. But if not, you're just nuts. That's all you got, just nuts. But you do it, you can have peanut butter. You can, what? Experience it. He wants to demonstrate it. You know, have you ever gone through and then they do the little juicer thing and they're like, oh, this one, you know, has no pulp and, and there's no pulp thing where it's, it's, so it's all right there, but it just turned into 100% juice and you're like, serious. And you're looking underneath, where did you put it? Mine doesn't do that. No, listen, we'll demonstrate again. Watch. What is it to demonstrate? It's to personally experience it. So when he says here, to demonstrate at the present time, God still does miracles and He still wants to demonstrate things. He doesn't want you to have a picture of Jesus on your wall in the hallway and go, oh, Jesus. He's okay if you do. He wants you to experience Jesus in your heart, in life. And not only does He want you to experience Him inside, but He wants you to understand and experience. And He's the one who demonstrates this, not you. He wants to demonstrate this. I mean, I don't eat a lot of desserts, but I like desserts. So I went into Costco one day, and there was all these big chocolate chip with almond or walnut cookies there. And I was like, whoa. You, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of these cookies, I will fear no evil. You're preparing a table before me in the, no, 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 not this kind of table. And the lady, I don't know if she saw that little sparkle in my eye when I looked, (laughs) said, those are on sample. They're sampling them back there. And so I said, get behind me. (laughs) And said, I'm going back there. So I went back there and I, you know, acted like an airplane, you know, you circle and then they grab one. Then you circle again and grabbed another one, and I circled again and grabbed another one. I was like, oh my, these things are really good, and I had another one. I was experiencing these cookies so much so I took them. They did all the work, but I experienced them. And he wants to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. There has to be something that's experiential about it. If there is with natural things in life that are demonstrated, that are tasted, there has to be. There has to be a consciousness of this righteousness in the believer that I really am guilt-free because of Jesus. I really am guilt-free. And if I am experiencing guilt, then it may not be from God and it may not be from me. It may be because I have a lack of understanding about His righteousness that He did this work and made me in good standing, and therefore, I don't have to try to be in good standing. Here's the thing. You've got the power of God in you when you get saved. You need to declare, I am righteous. If you're not, you can receive him and have this free gift, because it is a gift. And he said he wants to demonstrate. Wouldn't a demonstration of right standing be no more condemnation? It's what Romans said, there's no more condemnation. God will not condemn you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. 
But why do people experience condemnation? Because they don't understand this breastplate of righteousness. That God gave them this so they don't have to feel inferior. Somebody you know, said, well, you, but what of all the stuff I've done wrong? He paid for it. I said he paid for it. To demonstrate at this present time, well, I experienced those cookies, I've experienced other things, but he wanted to demonstrate at the present time. When you get saved, there's a demonstration. But here's the thing. He wants it to constantly be demonstrated in your life. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation, no inferiority, accepted in the beloved. Those are scriptures. Notice what he wants to demonstrate at the present time. His righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I'm going to read this from the, this verses from a, a couple other translations because it actually uses the word, the word righteous. Notice this. It says, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. He declared you innocent before God. He declares you not guilty before God. He declares you clean before God, but not only does he declare you that way, he makes you that way spiritually, not in your mind. That's why the Bible challenges us to renew our minds. And it's sad that so many people go back under the old covenant instead of looking at what Jesus did. Another translation uses the same words. It says, for the showing forth of his righteousness. He wants to show this in your life in this present time. For he, his being righteous and declaring him righteous who has faith in Jesus. Now let's close in 2 Corinthians 5. I, I, I know these things are huge. But people need to know, not only are you declared righteous, Ephesians said you were created that way when you get saved. Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to close right here. People need to know this because what it does is it makes them stronger inside. And Christians need to be strong inside. Remember we said be strong in the Lord in those first verses and in the power of His might? The reason why people are overcome with guilt and condemnation as believers is they don't know these truths, so they don't stand up. But what if you really knew that what he did was cleanse you in such a way that he sees no shame and no guilt in you? It's the only way you can get to heaven. But the problem is if you don't know these things, your unrenewed mind may challenge you. Notice this. And we're going to close with this. Verse 21, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He never experienced it. He never did it. To be sin, uh, sin for us. You could say, He became everything you were. So you could be everything He is. Notice what it goes on to say. For us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Notice how righteous you are. You're the righteousness of God. In yourself? No. In Him. In Him. What people need to do, and I know people wouldn't like this, but I got lots of Bible verses. A Christian should proclaim, not his own goodness, but I'm righteous. Others will say, I'm trying to be. But how can you try when somebody's paid off your house to stop paying? You just stop and know it's paid for. Right? And it's paid for, so you need to recognize He is my very own righteousness. When I accepted Him, I actually accepted my freedom and good standing. Why is this important? Because everybody is going to need to stand before God. In prayer, everybody is going to need to stand before the wiles and tricks of the enemy in this life. 
And if you're not standing before God and you're not facing the enemy, you have to face your own heart. And when you face your own heart, what do you have when no one else is around? And somebody said, well, I'm working. You don't work. If you have Jesus, you have this. And what happens is you have to face all those things in life. And the only way you're going to ever be able to face yourself, because, you know, how many self-righteous people, I've worked hard, I've worked hard, I've worked hard, I'm getting to the place where I'm good enough. Nobody can ever do that, because the Bible said by our own works, we can never be good enough before God. If you can't be good enough before God, you aren't going to be good enough before yourself. And so if you're ever going to stand before God, or you're going to ever successfully stand before the enemy, or if you're ever going to be able to just stand in your own shoes, you're going to need to know, God made me clean. He made me right. He did in one move what years of sacrifices could not do. And the reason Jesus will never die again is because his work was sufficient to make a human being clean in God's sight, period. You remember the story about Moses? You know, everybody watched Ten Commandments when you were younger or something, you know? Charleston Heston went up on the mountain, got hair like mine. And, you know, he came down gray hair. But remember good old Moses? He was told by God, now you strike that rock. And then water came out, and they all the children of Israel drank and drank and drank and drank of that rock, and they were all satisfied, and they're like, yes. Then the next time they were supposed to drink of the rock, God said, now what I want you to do is you don't strike it. Well, the first time, I'm sorry, he struck it with his rod. And then after that, he said, now I don't want you to strike it. You just speak to that rock, and it will produce water. And you know, he struck the rock a second time, and people have read that story again and again and thought, God is so harsh that he didn't let Moses go into the promised land after bringing millions of his people out and he did everything right but that one thing he struck it instead of just speaking to it the next time well we know from the Bible because the Bible tells us that that rock was a picture of Jesus and that Jesus was only to die once it was a picture for all of eternity that Jesus doesn't need to be struck twice he just needs to be struck once. After that, we talk. How do people get saved? Jesus, be my Lord. How do you get forgiven? Beat yourself with a rod? Oh, you're going to have to do something about this Jesus. No, he already has done something. You speak to him. I receive that healing that is mine, that forgiveness that is mine. You've already paid for it. And what happens is, People don't realize that he's already done something. But if you get this knowledge, you'll realize I am right. I'm as right as I'll ever be before God. Because it's a gift. Nowhere in the New Testament do you ever find that righteousness is ever something you work for. It's something you received when you received Jesus. But without a knowledge of it, you'll feel inferior. You'll feel condemned. But when you have a knowledge of it, it'll make you rise up and go, hey, I can go talk to God and not be bothered by what he says to me. <laughs> In his sight, I'm clean. But yeah, I just did something five minutes ago. Yeah, but his blood did something 2,000 years ago.